Nehemiah chapter 11. And if you don't have your own Bible with you, we have a pew Bible under one of the chairs near you. And it's going to be on page 405. 405 and otherwise, uh, either way actually, Nehemiah chapter 11. Well, so far in Nehemiah, we have seen how in the first seven chapters of Nehemiah, the people were building this wall uh, to protect the city of Jerusalem. And then from Nehemiah chapter 8 on, what we have seen is that they are now, God is building a people through the leadership of Nehemiah and Ezra and others. And in chapter 8, we saw this great revival as the word of God came back to the people, men, women, and children listened to the law being read on that big celebration day they had in Nehemiah 8 for six hours. And as they listened to God's law, they began to weep because they realized how far they fell short of God's law. And so Nehemiah put a pause on the mourning over their sin. And he said, look, today is a day of celebration. We need to remember what God has done. We need, to, we need to celebrate the fact that he is bringing his word back to his people. He is working among his people again. And so we're going to put a pause on that morning and we're going to celebrate some of these festivals that we read about in the law that we've been neglecting, like the Feast of Booths, which they did. And then last Sunday in chapter 9 in Nehemiah, we saw how the people got out from under a massive pile of sin as they were overwhelmed with their sin, but they gave it to the Lord collectively and individually with a great time of confession. Well, then in chapter 10, take a look at chapter 10. If you have your Bibles open that we just alluded to this last week, they've made a covenant with God to keep the covenant. And then next week in our last time together in Nehemiah in chapter 13, we will see how that went. So we'll kind of come back to chapter 10 because we'll see how did this covenant keeping promise go uh, 13 years or so later. So here we are in chapters 11 and 12 today, and originally I didn't think that I would take a whole sermon in chapters 11 and 12, but I hope that you'll see as I was studying it and praying about it this week, I just saw things in here that I thought God wanted for us uh, as a church, and so I didn't want to uh, just summarize these chapters. What I want you to do is go ahead and turn to chapter 12, and I want to give you kind of a focus verse for everything that we're going to see in chapters 11 and 12. And this is in verse 43. So Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 43. This is very important. It says in verse 43, And they offered great sacrifices that day. And we'll see the context. We'll, we'll work through that. It's the wall dedication. Nehemiah 12, 43. They offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. This would be like if you are in Boston this coming Tuesday or Wednesday when the Red Sox win the World Series. Just throwing that out there, a little prediction. And, and you're in Boston on Tuesday or Wednesday, and you can't get tickets to the game, probably because you can't afford them, right? But you can't get tickets to the game, and yet you're in Boston, and when that moment happens, you will hear the joy. 
even if you are outside of Fenway, you will hear the joy. Well, I want you to take a look at verse 43 again. Five times it talks about the word rejoice or joy. And these people are rejoicing not because they were told to be joyful, but because they are joyful. It says actually in verse 43, God has made them rejoice. So to tell these people to be joyful would be like telling a bride on her wedding day as she is walking out of the church holding her groom's hand, rejoice, okay? You need to rejoice. It would be like telling a dad who's holding a newborn baby and his children, you need to rejoice. It'd be like telling your children who didn't expect dessert for dinner tonight, after you give them a bowl full of ice cream, rejoice. <laughs> These people don't need to be told to rejoice. They are joyful. They do rejoice because of what God has done. And when we come to Christ as our Savior, we are actually given full joy at that moment. We have full access to joy. I'll explain what I mean by that. One of the best definitions of biblical joy that I've been able to come up with as I have studied joy in the Bible is that it is the deep abiding confidence that all is right between you and God. Joy then would be the deep abiding confidence that all is right between you and God. But even though we're given this full measure of joy when we come to Christ that will finally be realized in heaven, in this world, as we know, there are things that chip away at our joy. There are things that threaten to cover up our joy. And so we have to constantly be working at helping our joy in Christ grow. And so that's what I want us to see today. The Bible gives us lots of ways to help our joy in Christ grow. But I want us to see three things in Nehemiah chapters 11 and 12. So first, we're going to see in chapter 11... Uh, basically, the whole chapter, we'll just summarize that chapter. You can read all those names on your own later. I'll be reading some of them. Uh, through half of chapter 12, what I want you to see there is that we foster joy when we give ourselves to God. We foster joy. Foster means to help something to grow. We foster joy when we give ourselves to God. So let's look at verses 1 and 2 for now in chapter 11. So you're going to turn back to chapter 11. Let's just read verses 1 and 2 first. It says, Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So the rest of Nehemiah chapter 11 is basically going to be a list of those who lived in Jerusalem and some of the surrounding villages. And we, we need to ask the question, we need to remind ourselves, why was this such a big deal? Well, remember, Jerusalem was what I like to call a bombed out, broken down city. And the reason I like to call it that at this point here in history is because when you watch the news and you see a, a town that ISIS had come in and taken over and then the allied forces came against ISIS uh, and, and fought, between all the fighting that's gone on in that city, 
you, you get the picture in your mind of what Jerusalem would have looked like. And they've made progress, but remember, it's been 135 years since the people first came back to the land. They have rebuilt the temple, but even before they rebuilt the temple, a lot of them rebuilt these lavish houses, even uh, outside of the city of Jerusalem. You see some of the prophets, like Haggai, for example, coming against them and saying, look, you built these fancy houses, but you haven't focused on the house of the Lord. And now Nehemiah has come and the wall of Jerusalem has been rebuilt. But the reason that it was so important that Jerusalem be rebuilt after over a century of the people being back in the land and, and the city still being in ruins is because don't forget, there were so many prophecies. Jerusalem was the epicenter of God's plan of redemption. The Messiah would come to Jerusalem. This is where the temple was. This is where God's people would come to meet with God in a special way that they could be in these first two at that time anywhere else. And so we see in these first two verses of chapter 11 that it seems that there were two groups. There were those who volunteered to live in Jerusalem, and then those, there were those who were drawn by lot. Do you see what they're doing? They take a tithe of the people. They take 10% of the people, and they choose them by lot to be the ones who, kind of like the short straw type of idea, to be the ones who would end up living in Jerusalem. And so they do this to help it be a thriving city again. I want you to notice in verse 2, it says they blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Well, we're going to be leading up to this great moment of joy when the wall's dedicated. And what I want you to see as this joy is building among the people and as they're preparing to repopulate the city and help it to be a thriving city so it can be ready for Messiah to come, is that we foster joy when we give ourselves to God. Like I said, the rest of chapter 11, if you just turn a page or, or so, depending on your Bible's format, and you take a look at the rest of the chapter, it's basically a list of those who ended up living in or around Jerusalem, at least some of the families anyway, and the, and the leaders. And then you get to chapter 12, and chapter 12 goes all the way back to the initial homecomers, those who came about 135 years before this time, back from the exile in Babylon. And then in the middle of chapter 12, you have this subsequent generation, a generation after that. So you have two chapters of all these lists. And what I was able to get out of this is that what we have in common in these lists is that these were people who gave themselves to God first. Do you see that? It was not a great place to live. It was not a great place to raise your kids. But these people were willing to give themselves to God first and to move back to Jerusalem to help this happen because they believed in what God was doing there and they gave themselves to God first, believing that was where God wanted them. Even the ones who were drawn by Lot, you don't see anyone kicking or screaming. They went there when they believed it was God's will. And what I want us to see is that we foster joy. We help joy to grow when we give ourselves to God. So I want to ask you, what is it that God might be calling you to do that you are afraid to do right now? What is it that God is calling you to do that you are afraid to do right now? 
Maybe you've been afraid to give your heart to Jesus. Maybe you hear this message about Jesus, but you've been afraid to give your heart to him. You've been afraid to ask him to save you of all your sins. Maybe it's because you're afraid of being called a Jesus freak. And I can tell you, a lot of us in this room have been called a Jesus freak. It actually feels kind of good. Because if somebody calls you a Jesus freak or something along those lines, what it means is that they somehow see Jesus in you. So it actually brings great joy because you realize, I really do believe in Jesus. Somebody else sees this in my life. Jesus is worth giving up your sin and following him. Jesus is worth whatever kind of derision anybody might receive because they are a follower of Jesus. So I ask you, if you're scared to give yourself to God this morning, trust in Jesus. Trust that he is worth it. And if you trust in him, then he will show you that he's worth it. He will save you. He will come to you for salvation now, and he will promise eternal life when you die. Maybe you're a believer, but you've been afraid to give up a certain sin in your life. It might be something that came to mind when I said that. And what have we learned here so far? We've learned that we foster joy when we give ourselves to God. Listen close to this. Sin promises joy easily, but falls short. Sin promises for joy to come easily, but it falls short. But Jesus promises joy through trials and delivers every time. See, we foster joy when we give ourselves to God. Warren Wiersbe's commentary on Nehemiah, it's called Be Determined. It's been so helpful to me as I've prepared to teach this series on Nehemiah. And he says something about these verses, chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, that just really struck, uh, struck me. I think it might be helpful to some of you. He says, never underestimate the importance of simply being physically present in the place where God wants you. You may not be asked to perform some dramatic ministry, but simply being there is a ministry. The men, women, and children who helped to populate the city of Jerusalem were serving God, their nation, and future generations by their step of faith. Notice, as you look over this list and you see all of these names, notice that God noticed them. God noticed them. What do you do with lists in the Bible? And we've talked about this a few weeks ago. Remember, even if you're looking at a list in your Bible reading and you can't figure out any other reason that it's there, and they're usually, well, there's always another reason, but even if you're looking at it and looking at it and you just can't figure out why it's there, if nothing else, remember that God remembers them. God knows their names. God knows your name. He remembers who you are and he cares, and he cares about what you've done for him. You and I will someday uh, say to our spouse or to a friend, do you, do you remember so-and-so who used to do fill-in-the-blank at church? There's some names that I, I can just tell you now, a few decades from now, we're not going to remember those names. We might remember who they are, we might remember what they did, but you will forget certain names. Do you remember so-and-so? Have you ever said that? And then you describe them and you know who you're talking about, but you just can't remember their name. 
Well, God doesn't forget names. God knows who his people are. And in fact, it's important to him to write out for us, even centuries, millennia later, who these names are. So remember, even when nobody else notices, God notices. And then also, I want to remind you, let the list in your Bible remind you of God's faithfulness. As we just saw, it's interesting to me that these, uh, in chapter 11, like I said, it's primarily those who at that time populated Jerusalem, but then all of a sudden there's a switch. And you can see this at the beginning of chapter 12. All of a sudden it says in chapter 12, verse 1, these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel. Well, what it's talking about is clear back when the exile began. And so even for these people at this time, it was a remembrance of God's faithfulness. They were being reminded by these lists that God was faithful generation after generation after generation, century and even centuries and millennia now later for us, we are reminded of God's faithfulness. And then last thing to, to remember that we foster joy when we give ourselves to God, take a look back again at chapter 11, verse 2. Notice how it says that the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. And of course, that's talking about the men representing their families. So their families are moving there as well. Well, the people blessed those who willingly did the harder thing by living in Jerusalem when it was not a nice place to live. And they did it anyway for God's glory. And so I want to ask you, who would we bless in our local church for doing what nobody else wants to do? There are lots of, lots of ways to serve the church, and there's things that nobody will notice. There's things that may not get your name on a list this side of heaven. But who would we bless at our local church for doing what nobody else wants to do? Would you be included on that list? Well, we foster joy when we give ourselves to God. Next, I want us to see in chapter 12, so you can go ahead and turn to the end of chapter 12. Starting in verse 27, we foster joy when we give our praise to God. We foster joy when we give our praise to God. It has been a busy three months in Jerusalem. They've built the wall in 52 days. They've spent another month celebrating uh, the Feast of Booths, confess their sin. They're learning God's law again. And now it's time to have a wall dedication party. So take a look at chapter 12 starting in verse 27. And I'm going to read a little more scripture than I normally read. As you can see, we're covering two entire chapters here. But I want to read this, even though there's a lot of names in this, to give you the big picture of what's going on. Remember, when I read these names, God knows, God cares, shows us his faithfulness. Take a look at verse 27 of chapter 12. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places, to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. That's not people who lie. That's kind of like a, kind of like a guitar um, back at that time. Verse 28, And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netopathites, we're going to call them that, Verse 29, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Osmaveth, 
For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. Notice they've faithfully done this so they can be part of the temple worship without having to travel. They're trying to be realistic and helpful here. Verse 30, and the priest and the Levites purified themselves and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Notice that they are preparing for worship. They're preparing for a special celebration, yes. But I want you to notice that they are preparing for worship. Every now and then we get the idea that preparation for worship is bad, that it should always all be spontaneous. But what sticks out at me glaringly from these two chapters is that there is a time and a place for spontaneous worship, and sometimes that spontaneous worship happens within a worship service. But what we see here is that... uh, as I studied these passages, is that God has ordered in these passages either hundreds or thousands of people, depending on what time it is in Israel's history, to be involved either full-time or part-time as even their job in the worship of God and the teaching of the law. God is honored when we prepare to worship him. But this not only applies to the worship service. Take a look at verse 30, Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 30. In verse 30, we see how the people purified themselves. This would mean that they spiritually prepared themselves. We saw them doing this in chapter 9, confessing their sin to God, making sure that they are right with God before they enter his presence at the temple. But also, uh, for that time, this means that they would ceremonially purify themselves according to God's law. And today, we would do this by confessing our sin to God, by claiming the promises that Jesus has made to us in the gospel, that we have full access to God, full forgiveness of sins, eternal life, as we prepare our hearts to come into his presence together. And then take a look at verse 31, Nehemiah chapter 12. It says, Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, And after them went Hoshahiah and half of the leaders of Judah, verse 33, chapter 12. And Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets. Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zakur, son of Asaph. Does that sound familiar? We'll come back to that. Asaph. Verse 36, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Milalai, Gilalai, Maya, Nethanel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate, they went straight up before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. So before Tobiah, remember one of God's enemies, that we have seen in Nehemiah had been making fun of them by saying that even if a fox went up on this little puny wall that you're building, guys, it would fall down. Well, that was just a couple of months ago. And here they are on the wall. It's big enough for two choirs to be circling around the wall. They're going to come together and meet and go into the temple where the people are gathered and they're watching these choirs come around the wall with musical instruments. Look at what God has done. Here they are praising God on top of the wall that nobody thought could be built. And then notice it mentions Asaph. He was one of the priests.
priest who oversaw the singing. The sons of Asaph were priests who specifically focused on the singing in the temple worship. This would be probably one of his descendants or somebody named after him. Notice what it mentioned in that passage too about David. Did you notice that? It talks about the musical instruments of David. It talks about the city of David. Well, what was the promise that had been given to David? The promise was that the Messiah, the Savior, would come through him. The promise to David was that there would always be a king on the throne of his house. They're getting ready for the Messiah, and they're reminding themselves of that as they talk about how this is the city of David. Jesus was the son of David. Verse 38. Let's see what happens. Verse 38, the other choir... So we talked about the one choir, the other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north. And I, this is Nehemiah talking again now, followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim and by the gate of Yeshanah and by the fish gate and the tower of Hananel and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. Just think about how God's people would have felt that day. And think about how they would have felt even just a generation later as they read these things and they realized, you know what? God used me to build that gate that they're talking about. It was my grandpa who was there building that gate. And he was there that day celebrating God's faithfulness. My grandma was there in the crowd cheering him on. Then take a look at verse 40. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God. They met in the temple and I and half of the officials with me. And then it talks about more names and priests and trumpets and singing. And then verse 43, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. We foster joy when we give our praise to God. In verse 40, take a look again at verse 40. Do you notice the phrase at the beginning of the verse that says in English, both choirs of those who gave thanks? In the original Hebrew, that's literally the thanksgivings. So in English, we have to expand it. We say the choirs who gave thanks. They're just saying that the choirs are thanksgivings. So there was a thanksgiving that went this way. There was a thanksgiving that went this way. Just think we could call our worship team the thanksgiving. And so it's a reminder that one of the things that we do in praise is we give thanks to God. And as we give thanks to God, we remember his faithfulness. We remember his grace. We remember what he has done for us. And that fosters joy. That's why I encourage people, if they're struggling with depression, they're struggling maybe just with a touch of the blues, I encourage them, come to church because you might not be joyful. You may not even feel joyful during the service, but you can still express some joy just based on God's promises. And the joy of God's people might be contagious. Well, we foster joy when we give our praise to God. God's people are a singing people. One commentator that I read even went as far to say, I still need to study this out a little bit for myself. I hadn't really thought of it this way. One commentator went as far to say that 
Christians in the world today, as you look at all the world religions and even tribal religions around the world, he said, as I've looked at those, Christians are the only ones I've found who joyfully sing. He said, there are religions who sing, some of them, but they don't sing joyfully. Christians are supposed to be a singing people and a joyful people. And it's not necessarily because we're told to be joyful. It's because we are joyful at what God has done. Listen to C.S. Lewis. And I know I'm risking reading a little more than normal today. I read a little longer scripture passage. I'm going to read a longer C.S. Lewis quote to you because you need to hear this. C.S. Lewis in Reflections on the Psalms says this. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. Now remember, C.S. Lewis is an author. I love this. He says, it is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is or to come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. Think about it. When you see a sunset, what do you naturally do? Tell somebody about it. You're praising that sunset because it's beautiful. Maybe you're praising God seeing the beauty that he has created, but you want to share it. You at least want to express it to God or else your joy, your enjoyment of that sunset is not complete. And that's the same way with God. Our joy is fostered when we praise him. I'll never forget my friend Ryan in Albuquerque. His father-in-law, he was a, a young married man, Ryan was, and his father-in-law was suddenly and violently murdered at gunpoint for no reason. It was some sort of robbery of a restaurant from what I can remember, and he just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And Melly and I went to the memorial service, and as they sang, blessed be the name of the Lord, and they're singing, you give and take away. Ryan had already shared a testimony of his father-in-law's influence in his life. He and his wife had been missionaries for a couple of years, had really struggled there. And he talked about how his father-in-law had encouraged him and helped them through that time, even over the phone. And I remember seeing Ryan's hands lifted in praise. And it was just something I'll never forget because here he's mourning a senseless murder but he's able to praise. Do you see how joy is deeper than how we feel? Joy is deeper than a plastic smiley face. Joy is the deep confidence that all is right between us and God. And he knew where his father-in-law was, so he could praise with joy. Well, here in Nehemiah 12, the people have a great reason to have great joy. Look at what God has done. 
what greater reason do we have to have joy? What greater reason on this side of the cross do we have? We know more of God's plan of redemption. We know more about the Messiah. We actually have had the Messiah revealed to us. That's what the New Testament calls a mystery. It was something that they couldn't understand before in the Old Testament, but now Jesus has been revealed to us. We know where we're going. If you know Christ as your Savior, you know that you have that promise of heaven. So we have even more reason to have great joy. Well, we've seen that we foster joy when we give ourselves to God. And then second, we've seen we foster joy when we give our praise to God. And then last, for just a few minutes, I want you to see that we foster joy when we give our gifts to God. Take a look at verse 44 of uh, chapter 12. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priest and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priest and the Levites who ministered. As a pastor, I noticed the end of verse 44. It speaks to me. It means so much when you know that people rejoice over your ministry, not because you want them to rejoice in you, but because you want them to find joy in God. And do you notice how the people do that at the end of verse 44 as they faithfully give to this work and as the priests faithfully do that work? They gave so the work of the house of God could go on with many people working there. One reason the temple work had been neglected before is because the the people had not given so the temple could not be kept in good repair. The sacrifices could not be offered properly. We're going to see Nehemiah is really mad uh, next week in chapter 13 because he's gone for 13 years. He comes back and they're not doing this anymore. The storehouses are empty and you'll see next week. I'm going to make you come back to find out what's in those storehouses instead of what they were supposed to use for the worship of the temple. And then the priest and the Levites could not give themselves full time to their work. At this point, I just want to say, as I see this in God's word, I just want to say thank you to you as a church body for allowing me to serve you full time. It is a joy to bring God's word to you. It is a joy to be your pastor. And I hope you find joy in not only giving to the Lord's work so that I can do this full time, but also so that all the ministries of our church can be supported and so that missions around the world can be supported as we want to spread the gospel. And then take a look at verse 45. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, notice they go back to David, there were directors of the singers and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. This passage reminds me of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you want to study this idea more that we foster joy when we give our gifts to God, 
then maybe just write down 2 Corinthians chapter 8 or turn there and stick your bulletin in there to take a look at it later. This is where the Apostle Paul writes to the Macedonian churches. And he's praising God for, you know what? I love this. He says the grace of giving. He's praising God for the grace that he has given them, that he's put in their hearts. It's the passage where he talks about how God loves a cheerful giver. And he's praising God for this because they didn't just give, they gave joyfully. And in fact, he says, you get the idea, they were actually suffering under poverty. You read that in 2 Corinthians 8, and you get the idea he was trying to stop them because he was worried about them, but they just wanted to give to God's work. It was an overflow of the joy that they had in Christ. When I was an associate pastor in Albuquerque, Albuquerque just keeps coming up today, uh, our church had a partnership with an indigenous uh, missionary pastor in Mexico. It was only about five hours away, so every three months or so, I would be team, I'm sorry, every summer we, for a day or two, and every week, Melanie and I would lead a, a team, I'm sorry, every summer we would lead a team down there for a week. And I'll never forget the shock on my parents' faces when I brought them down for the first time to meet some of our friends, some of our brothers and sisters in Christ there. And the shock was when we went to one of the pastor's houses. And this was an area of extreme poverty on the outskirts of Juarez. We're talking pallet houses everywhere. And we sat down outside this little rusty metal table and chairs. And the pastor's wife comes out of the house with a bottle of Coke. And they looked at me like, what do we do? And I said, we drink the Coke. We're just grateful for it. They couldn't believe that she was giving them something out of her extreme poverty, that it was what she wanted to do to serve her guests. She had great joy. And remember, we foster joy when we give our gifts in service to God. Well, as we've gone through each of these three principles in Nehemiah 11 and 12 about fostering joy, about helping our joy to grow. I hope that you've seen how Christ uh, completes and fulfills and expands our joy. One of the things that I love about Jesus is that when we expect something to be down here, he does it all the way up here. We see that over and over and over as you study Jesus or as you read about him and one of the Gospels, for example, he takes things to the next level. Think about giving our praise to God. He not only brings us to not only the earthly Jerusalem, like he did the people in Nehemiah's time, but he promises us that he will bring us to the new physical Jerusalem on the new heaven and the new earth, where we will praise God forever. Do you see the, the difference there? We find joy when we, give, uh, when we uh, give our praise to God, but he not, only, uh, bring, he not only brought God's people to the earthly Jerusalem, God did, Jesus brings us to the heavenly Jerusalem, the one that will join the new heaven and the new earth where we will worship him perfectly and have fullness of joy forever if we know Christ. That's heaven, the new heaven and the new earth. We foster our joy when we give our gifts to God, but Jesus gave himself. He left, we could say, a palace, as you think about Nehemiah, 
And as you think about the situation Nehemiah was in before he came to this broken to come, bombed out city of Jerusalem, Jesus left heaven to come to earth so that our joy can be complete, so we can live with him in the eternal city with great joy. But what about the list? These chapters are so dominated by these long lists. Well, Jesus addresses that too. But first, let me tell you about the list on the Titanic for just a second as we close. When the Titanic left the port in Southampton in the UK in 1912, there were three lists of passengers. And what list your name was on would have a huge impact on your travel during that voyage. You could be on the first class list, you could be on the second class list, or you could be in the steerage down below on the third class list. But when the Titanic sunk, there was only one list that mattered. Nobody cared anymore what list you had been on before. It was the list of survivors. That was all that mattered. And there's so many things that can seem so important in life today, but I want to go back to this idea of the list of people who had given themselves to God. Jesus says in Luke 10, 20, after the disciples have gone out on a mission trip, they've been sent out by him, they've seen God do great things. And Jesus says, even more than the demons being subject to you, he says, rejoice because your name is written in heaven. I'm going to read it, Luke 10, 20. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. More than anything, what will give you the most joy is if your name is written in heaven. God keeps lists, and he talks about a book of names, a book that has lists in heaven that is the list of his people. And the way that you can know if you are on that list, it's not a mystery. The Bible says, trust in Jesus. Have you believed in him alone for your salvation? And if so, you can rejoice that your name is on that list and that you have access to joy now and you have fullness of joy promised for you in heaven. God, we thank you for this great joy that you give us this great joy that you promise us and that we have access to right now on earth. Please help us to do the things that you have told us to do in your word, that you have commanded us to do, realizing that it is for our joy. And God, we mostly praise you for the great joy that has been promised to us in heaven. That's what ultimately gives us joy now. So I do want to pray, Lord, if anyone here does not know Christ as their Savior, that they would come to him right now, that they would pray, even as we are singing our closing song, that they would pray, they would pray to you, they would confess to you that they are a sinner separated from God, but that they trust in you, that you died on the cross for their sins, and that you rose from the dead. You tell us that whosoever believes in you, Jesus, will have eternal life and will not perish. 